Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, American Nightmare, Malcolm X. He was a man of many names. His life story is called the Autobiography of Malcolm X, but over the course of the book, he is also known as Malcolm Little, Detroit Red, Satan, and finally, Al-Hajj Malik Al-Shabazz. Toward the end of the autobiography, X remarks, My whole life had been a chronology of changes. The names track those changes. Malcolm Little endures a childhood in Michigan marked by violent tragedy and grinding poverty. Detroit Red is a criminal hustler on the streets of Boston and New York City. Satan serves time as a proudly atheistic prisoner until his brother, Reginald, exposes him to the teachings of the Nation of Islam. Enter Malcolm X, a minister for the nation who sees himself as a mere mouthpiece for its leader, Elijah Muhammad. Then, towards the end of his short life, he is Al-Hajj Malik al-Shabazz. The first part of that name refers to his pilgrimage, or Hajj, to Mecca, an experience that was almost literally revelatory. In this last incarnation, he is a devout believer in what he calls Orthodox Islam, and he begins to retreat from some of his more incendiary political and philosophical views. Finally, as he is in the midst of this new phase of life and thought, he is cut down by an assassin in February of 1965. It's typical of X that the many names serve a philosophical as well as biographical function. He constantly labeled and relabeled things in what has been called a process of reclamation of self-sovereignty or true self-consciousness. For example, following Elijah Muhammad, he objected to the designation of Black Americans as Negroes, identifying it as a term whose use is a legacy of slavery. The fact that Negro is considered an outdated term today is due in no small part to the growing influence of this position taken by X and the Nation of Islam as the 1960s wore on. In March 1963, X was interviewed on the City Desk television show in Chicago, and the interview is currently easy to find on YouTube. This encounter with several white journalists is quite typical of his media appearances. X was often referred to as the angriest Negro in America, a description he did not deny. Yet he remains calm and analytical as he skillfully frustrates and refutes his interlocutors, for instance by refusing to divulge his birth name on the grounds that it is not his name at all. Rather, like other black Americans, he was burdened with the surname of a man who enslaved and indeed probably raped his ancestors. As he never tired of pointing out, his own light skin and reddish hair were a constant reminder of the history of white rape of black women. In the autobiography, he comments, You and me polluted all these colors, and this devil has the arrogance and the gall to think we, his victims, should love him. Remarks of this kind are scattered throughout the book, Yet the autobiography is much more than a series of reflections on racial oppression and a call to rise up against it. It is to some extent less like, say, David Walker's appeal, and more like Augustine's Confessions, a spiritual rags to spiritual riches story whose protagonist is guided by God from a condition of mental death to religious rebirth. The parts of the book concerning his time as Detroit Red are gripping, as he sells and takes drugs, consorts with prostitutes, and even plays Russian roulette to impress some fellow thieves. At times, the style is that of hard-boiled crime fiction. You didn't ask questions in the rackets. 
I never heard from him again, but I did hear that he was put in the ocean, and I knew he couldn't swim. Or when he narrowly avoids a lethal encounter with another hustler, he backed down. He walks on by me. I guess he wasn't ready to make history. I had gotten to the point where I was walking on my own coffin. X is trying in these parts of the book not to entertain us, but to impress upon us the depth of his former depravity. In a typical passage, he states, I believed that a man should do anything that he was slick enough or bad and bold enough to do, and that a woman was nothing but another commodity. Every word I spoke was hip or profane. I would bet that my working vocabulary wasn't 200 words. But this is all meant to set up the dramatic transformation that comes when he discovers the light of Islam. As he puts it, the very enormity of my previous life's guilt prepared me to accept the truth. He has more than a new name, he has a completely changed outlook on his own life of crime and on the misery of his upbringing, which saw his father murdered by the Ku Klux Klan and his mother committed to an institution. Thanks to the teachings of the man he always calls the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, he now sees these as typifying the damage and violence meted out to black people by white America. While this story of a transition from ignorance to enlightenment makes for a clear narrative arc, we should take it with a grain of salt. It can hardly be a coincidence that his parents were both involved in the activities of Marcus Garvey's UNIA. Indeed, their marriage is reflective of the wide and international influence of Garveyism. Malcolm's father, Earl, was from Georgia, and his mother, Louise, was from the Caribbean, specifically the island of Grenada. They met and married in Montreal, brought together by their membership in the UNIA. Had they not eventually moved to Omaha, where X was born, he might have been a Canadian, like Chike. Elijah Muhammad was himself powerfully influenced by Garvey, and then even more so by another black leader of the early 20th century, Noble Drew Ali. Born Timothy Drew, he founded the Moorish Science Temple, the first large-scale movement calling African Americans to accept Islam, or at least what he described as Islam. What he preached was a syncretic mix of faiths and religious teachings. What was perhaps most important and powerful in Ali's message was his claim that African Americans must recognize themselves as Moors, whose embrace of Islam is in fact a return to an ancestral faith. Among the members of the Moorish Science Temple was the man who was born Elijah Poole, but would eventually be known as Elijah Muhammad. He would go on to lead the Nation of Islam, but he was not in fact its founder. That would be a man shrouded in much historical mystery, known as Wallace Fard Muhammad. According to Elijah Muhammad, Wallace Fard Muhammad was Allah in the flesh, and he came to teach the so-called Negro knowledge of self. Returning now to X, it has been suggested that the Garvey ideas of his family home were at best latent or dormant during his time as a cynical criminal. But in fact, we know that he did attend political events and read socialist literature even at that time, though he could not be convinced to join the Communist Party or any other political group at that time. Any youthful consciousness of oppression is erased in the autobiography in order to heighten the contrast between benighted street hustler and enlightened Muslim. But he does allude to his father's politics to explain his own black nationalism and says in passing, all my life I had been an activist, I had been impatient. Notice that he alludes to his father's example, not his mother's, even though she was also a UNIA activist. This goes together with a more general silence in the autobiography about the women who influenced his thought. It's been pointed out that in Malcolm's Detroit Red period as a street hustler, 
The activist Vicki Garvin tried to recruit him for left-wing political causes in Harlem, and that a female black nationalist, Queen Mother Audley Moore, had an impact on his developing pan-Africanism, a topic we'll discuss more in a coming episode. But this is not something X was keen to highlight, which is unsurprising. For all his radicalism when it came to race, his ideas about women could be very patriarchal, as when he explains the Nation of Islam's view that women are by nature weak and men strong. He does say that Muslims are to treat women with respect, and as we just saw, he certainly regretted his earlier conception of women as mere commodities. It would only be at the end of his life, though, that he shifted toward what might be termed a progressive view of gender. Indeed, he used that term himself, saying, if you're in a country that's progressive, the woman is progressive. Perhaps he was thinking of women like Garvin and Moore when he added, I'm one person who's forgiving women all the leeway possible because they've made a greater contribution than many of us men. The earlier thought of X before his changes of heart in 1964 is often contrasted to the less angry and more loving approach of Martin Luther King Jr., and we ourselves will get back to that contrast shortly. But he is better understood in his own terms if we see him, and indeed the whole nation of Islam, as heir to the separatism and nationalism of Garvey, and of 19th century figures we covered in earlier episodes of this podcast, like Daniel Coker, John Russworm, Martin Delaney, and Henry McNeil Turner. But there was one aspect of X's thought that would have outraged Turner and plenty of other earlier African-American thinkers, his strident condemnation of Christianity. Early in his career as a Muslim activist, X collaborated with Elijah Muhammad on a newspaper column for the Los Angeles Herald-Dispatch, something we might compare to Marcus Garvey's and Amy Jakes Garvey's writings for the UNIA paper, The Negro World. In these columns, which appeared under the title God's Angry Men, Muhammad and X railed against Christianity as a tool used by the white man to ensure that black people remained the most ignorant, blind, deaf, and dumb people on earth. These, by the way, are some of the few pieces of written material by X. We saw that James Baldwin has been compared to Socrates, but this analogy arguably works even better for Malcolm X, who excelled in provocative debate and rarely committed his thoughts to writing. Even the autobiography is in fact an oral testimony fashioned into book form by Alex Haley, also famous as the author of Roots. Malcolm's energy and rhetorical skill allowed him to rise quickly in the ranks of the nation until he became minister of the important temple in Harlem. He started to come to the attention of white America through such incidents as a 1957 confrontation with New York City police. In the wake of a case of police brutality, a riot seemed ready to break out, until X received assurances from the authorities and dismissed the crowd with a literal flick of his fingers. One of the cops observed, no man should have that much power. That same year saw the airing of a television program with the telling title, The Hate That Hate Produced. It begins by describing a play staged at a Nation of Islam event as host Mike Wallace intones, the plot, indeed the message of the play, is that the white man has been put on trial for his sins against the black man. He has been found guilty. The sentence is death. We then see X himself being interviewed and commenting that white men are, by nature, evil. We don't have any historic example where we have found that they collectively, for the people, have done good. And thus, we arrive at the many accusations made against X in the early 60s. He was a merchant of hate, a reverse racist, a dangerous proponent of violence. My hobby, he said, is stirring up Negroes. The white media were appalled, 
and civil rights leaders were worried that X's incendiary appearances were counterproductive. In a debate with him at Harvard, Walter Carrington of the NAACP said that X's activism was the best thing that happened to the KKK since the invention of the bedsheet. Even in death, X remained, to put it mildly, divisive. A Kansas City newspaper played on X's infamous statement following the killing of President Kennedy by suggesting that his own assassination was the real case of chickens coming home to roost. But as X's critics invariably found when they had to engage with him, he was more than capable of articulating nuanced, cogent arguments for his own views. We can begin with his most Garveyite idea, namely that black Americans should separate from white America, rather than striving to integrate. X distinguished between separation and segregation, the difference being that separation is something that two equal groups choose to do, whereas segregation is imposed by a dominant group on an oppressed group. Initially, the Nation of Islam wanted black Americans to decamp to Africa, but they came to support the idea of setting aside a large swath of territory within the United States, where black people could build their own community. This takes us back to the quotation we gave at the end of the previous episode, where X said that America owes a debt to black people for all their labor, going back to the time of slavery. This debt could be paid by financing resettlement in Africa or through the provision of suitable land. The rationale for these proposals was the same as that given by those 19th century immigrationists and nationalists. It is simply unrealistic to expect the white man ever to live in peace and on equal terms with the black man. X said that this would be like expecting a chicken to produce a duck egg. The system of this country cannot produce freedom for an Afro-American. This was the essence of X's black nationalism, which he defined in the following terms. It means that the black man should control the politics and the politicians in his own community. In the same speech, he went on to insist that black people should operate their own economy, because as he told his African-American audience, anytime you have to rely upon your enemy for a job, you're in bad shape, and he is your enemy. You wouldn't be in this country if some enemy hadn't kidnapped you and brought you here. In the autobiography, he also gives the example of the Jews of Europe, to show what eventually happens to oppressed groups who think that assimilation is the way forward. At least until the last year or so of X's life, he categorically rejected any possibility that white Americans might be persuaded to make more than superficial gestures in the direction of racial equality. Thus, separation was the only possible solution. It was a pessimistic outlook, one well-founded in his own experience. When he was first introduced to the Nation of Islam's portrayal of white people as devils, he recalled all the encounters he'd had with white people since childhood and found nothing but confirmation. As a result, he took an even harsher view of apparently well-meaning white liberals than King did. In one memorable scene of the autobiography, a young white woman tearfully asks X what she can do to help black people, and he curtly replies, nothing. About the furthest he would go in tempering his condemnation of whites was to say that in speaking of white devils, he and Elijah Muhammad were not necessarily blaming individuals, but pointing to systematic racial oppression, both in history and the present. In other words, this was a critique of what white people do collectively. It might seem that in this period, with advances finally being made in civil rights, that judgment was no longer sustainable, but X dismissed apparent breakthroughs like the Supreme Court decision against school segregation as meaningless because they had little or no effect on the way most Black Americans were living. Indeed, 
he reserved special disdain for the few upwardly mobile blacks who had managed to integrate into white society with a modicum of success. Echoing E. Franklin Fraser's critique of the black bourgeoisie, he argued that they were simply being manipulated and duped by white America. And they were not alone. This was also his verdict on moderate civil rights activists, including King, whom he called a religious Uncle Tom, a traitor, a chump, and in a particularly colorful label of derision, Reverend Dr. Chicken Wing. In the wake of King's inspirational speech at the March on Washington, he said, while King was having a dream, the rest of us Negroes are having a nightmare. He made similar comments numerous times, including to King's close associate and sometime ghostwriter, Bayard Rustin. The two debated at Howard University, an event which none other than E. Franklin Fraser had a hand in organizing. In November of 1963, a few months after the march, X commented on King's pacifist methods in the following terms. You don't have a peaceful revolution. You don't have a turn-the-other-cheek revolution. There's no such thing as a non-violent revolution. You don't know what a revolution is. If you did, you wouldn't use that word. Revolution is bloody. Revolution is hostile. Revolution knows no compromise. Revolution overturns and destroys everything that gets in its way. Notice here the scornful allusion to turning the other cheek. Just as King's approach to the struggle was fundamentally shaped by his Christian belief, so X's attacks on that approach were of a piece with his rejection of Christianity. He simply did not think it admirable to meet violence with nonviolence. Rather, any self-respecting man would defend himself. As he said in an interview at the University of Berkeley in the same year, 1963, and again, it's on YouTube, if a dog attacks a man, the man is well within his rights to kill the dog. And he added, the same goes for any two-legged dog who sicks that dog on him. Notice that X's view is arguably closer to our common-sense moral intuitions than what King was saying. Leaving aside the question of whether the non-violence of King and Gandhi was effective tactically, it is very demanding ethically. Even if we admire the Christian path of turning the other cheek, of greeting unlimited amounts of violence with an attitude of peace and love, most of us probably don't consider it obligatory. Rather, it's commonly supposed that there is a moral right of self-defense just as much as there is a legal right of self-defense. To remain non-violent in the face of violence is what philosophers call supererogatory, going above and beyond the call of what is morally required. But X goes further in his criticism of nonviolence. He holds that refusing to protect oneself is not even admirable. In the autobiography, he says, I believe it's a crime for anyone who is being brutalized to continue to accept that brutality without doing something to defend himself. It was in exactly these terms that X explained his position on violence in the conversation filmed at Berkeley. Members of the Nation of Islam do not initiate violence and are in fact encouraged to be polite and courteous to all people, but they consider it not only legitimate, but right to respond violently when others are violent to them. One of the interviewers posed a good question here, a much better question than X usually got from white interlocutors. Why were the Muslims not in fact being violent, given the savage treatment being inflicted on civil rights protesters? X replied that it was because the protesters are engaged in a struggle that they do not endorse. If we believed in it, he explained, we would integrate and fight anyone who got in our way to stop us from integrating. But of course, the Nation of Islam wanted separation, not integration. Now, you didn't need to be a pious Christian like King 
to cherish the idea that Black and white Americans should find a way to love each other. As we saw, this was precisely the reason for James Baldwin's disquiet with the Nation of Islam. Remember him being invited to Elijah Muhammad's house and thinking to himself, isn't love more important than color? Again, X rejects this stance as wrongheaded, and in fact as the product of a kind of brainwashing. The white devils had worked for generations to get black people to think that, no matter how much they were oppressed, they should keep loving their oppressors. This is how he responded to the charge that he and the Nation of Islam were encouraging black people to hate white people, as implied in the title of that documentary, The Hate That Hate Produced. On the one hand, the answer was simply that Muslims were not encouraged to hate anyone. In the Chicago City Desk interview, he said flatly, hatred is not involved in it whatsoever. On the other hand, the very demand not to feel hatred in the face of centuries of racial oppression struck him as inappropriate, even obscene. In a 1963 interview with Alex Haley, published by Playboy magazine, he said, what I want to know is how the white man, with the blood of black people dripping off his fingers, can have the audacity to be asking black people, do they hate him? That takes a lot of nerve. In the same interview, he suggested that white people would be anti-white too, if they made a sufficient study of their own history. Taking stock of all this, it seems clear that there were differences between King and X that went beyond mere rhetoric or competition for support in the Black community. X believed that King's approach was bad strategy and bad ethics. Yet the difference between their views was not what is usually supposed. In particular, it is wrong to see X as having been in favor of unprovoked violence. He was in favor of provoked violence. But even this was not really his plan for solving the so-called Negro problem. Rather, he and Elijah Muhammad wanted to escape from the spiral of racial violence altogether by separating black from white. So if we contrast Martin Luther King Jr. to Malcolm X, we should lay particular weight on the debate between integration and separation. Of course, it is not a debate they invented, but was just the latest version of a political, practical, and philosophical dilemma that went back to the earliest forms of political debate among Africans in the diaspora. Still more complex is the contrast between King and the final incarnation of X, Al-Hajj Malik al-Shabazz. In the final year or so of life, X changed his views on a number of issues. He broke with Elijah Muhammad, who once commanded his utter devotion, but with the benefit of hindsight seemed a religious faker. He became more open to the thought that white people could do good, and came to regret such moments as the one where he told a well-meaning white woman there was nothing she could do. He still thought whites should leave black people to work together and unite amongst themselves, but allowed that white people could do a useful service by persuading other whites to be less racist. Most far-reaching, though, was his new understanding of how the struggle of African Americans was connected to the fight of Africans and other oppressed peoples around the world, as they sought to free themselves from colonialism. He came to believe, he said, that a psychological, cultural, and philosophical migration back to Africa will solve our problems, not a physical migration, but a cultural, psychological, philosophical migration back to Africa, which means restoring our common bond will give us the spiritual strength and the incentive to strengthen our political and social and economic position right here in America. The gap between King and X, or rather Al-Shabazz, was closing, prompting the question, had they lived longer, would they ultimately have become allies? That's not a question we can answer in full, of course, but we'll do our best to come as close as possible in a further scripted episode on the later thought of King and X. First, though, as you may have noticed, 
Today's episode was the 99th of the series on Africana philosophy, meaning that if our math is right, the next installment will be number 100. To celebrate, Chike and I will look back at what we've discussed over the episodes since our last conversation, and thus what we have learned about Africana philosophy over the course of the first half of the 20th century. So put an X to mark this spot, or perhaps a C, since it will be episode 100, not episode 10, and join us next time here on The History of Africana Philosophy.